Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs. We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. You're listening to Front Porch Song, written by Lyle Lovett and our guest on this Texas-sized episode of Songcraft, Robert Earl Keane. The inductee into the Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame joins us and special guest co-host Randy Poe in part two of the show. But first, in part one, Scott and I talk about our favorite songwriters from the Lone Star State. Part one. Well, Scott, I get the pleasure of opening this episode a little differently today. I get to say happy birthday. Hey, thanks. And uh, you and I used to hang out on our birthdays all the time in high school. Yeah, um, those so were some good days. I thought maybe we could order a pizza today and go to Blockbuster <laughs> and get a couple movies and just yeah, do it old school style. Totally. Love it. Uh, if we can find a blockbuster, I'll, I'll get back to you on that. We also have another interesting episode in that I'm not on this one, this upcoming interview. Correct. But we have a guest stepping in, kind of, you know, uh, an understudy for me, if you will. <laughs> yeah, so uh, my friend Randy Poe uh, is the very special guest host. I think this is the first time we've ever had a guest host when one of us has, has been away. We've yeah. had episodes where you've flown solo and I've done some flying solo, but... Uh, this is the first time we've brought in uh, someone else, and so well, you brought out a big gun. I'm honored. Yeah, that, that I, took, I, you know. I did. I mean, Randy is uh, a good friend of mine. He's um, basically the guy who ran Lieber and Stoller uh, Music Publishing, and still runs Lieber and Stoller Music yeah. Publishing. Of course, we've had Mike Stoller on the show. You know, the man who wrote "Stand yeah. By Me" and "Jailhouse Rock" and "Hound Dog" and about 50 other yeah. massive number one hits that uh, we'd be sitting here all day if we tried to name them. But that's uh, that's been Randy's gig, and and at one time he was actually the head of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Jeez. So he's got and, uh, and he's some, a, a historian beyond compare. Yeah, writer. I uh, wrote wrote a great uh, biography of uh, Dwayne Allman. He co-wrote Buck Owens' autobiography. He's uh, I think he's written like. A half dozen or more books, so um, quite a quite a cool guy. And what's funny is actually the first time Randy and I ever really got to know each other, the Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville did this big uh, exhibit about the Bakersfield sound, Buck Owens, Merle Haggard, yeah. you know that stuff, California country music. And Randy was recruited to write the essay for the companion book about Buck Owens because. Mm. Um, you know, obviously he had, he had been working on the, the book, you know, the, the Buck autobiography. So he's an expert in that field. And so he was kind of tapped to do that. I was tapped to write kind of the general essay about the history of Bakersfield's, uh, other artists. And, um, turns out Randy lives in uh, Westchester, just uh, like 10 minutes from here where I live. And, uh, he and I got together over at his house one afternoon, and um, we kind of hit it off. And we were talking, we we're hanging out, and I said, "I got to, uh, got to leave. I'm actually going to see Robert O'Keen tonight at mm. uh, at the House of Blues." He's like, "You're kidding me! I'm going to see Robert O'Keen 
tonight at the House of Blues. So we wound up actually getting together again at the Robert Earl Keen show yeah. and hanging out some more. And uh, kind of, uh, he's he's really been a, a good friend uh, to me and kind of a mentor. So it and it sort of goes all the way back to that first Robert Earl Keen show. So it's appropriate. You know, if I wasn't so charming, I might be worried about my job here at Songcraft. Yeah, and yeah. if I didn't have so much damning information about you and your past, but, right? But I'm right. pretty sure that I'm going to be able to hold on to this job. It's basically a blackmail kind of thing. Yeah, um, because oh, I'm fine with that. you know, and yeah, you know, I just thought you know we. I think that our relationship is is strong, and I and I felt like you know we can see other people. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, hey, before this gets awkward, um, <laughs> you had kind of a a fun idea for how to uh, go through this part one of, of today's episode with Robert O'Keen being yeah. a, a prominent writer from Texas. And, yeah. and we've seen a number of Texas writers um, come through yeah. the Songcraft office. Right. Or, uh, <laughs> Tom um, Douglas, Mac Davis. Yeah. Radney Foster, Mark James. I yeah. Mean, Tom Russell. We've that's Something about Texas. Yeah. And, and there, not only the writers from Texas, but there's a current of Texas pride. I mean, I think anyone that's ever met someone from Texas knows that that Texans and maybe anybody that's even lived there for more than a month or six weeks carries <laughs> a sense of state pride rivaled maybe only by New York. Yeah, it's uh, it, <laughs> you don't sort of I can't think of any other state that no. sort of has that kind of fierce uh Identity. No, because like, like if someone came out here to visit me in California and they were like, "Hey, I think the Mexican food here sucks," I'd be like, "Ah, eh, whatever." <laughs> right. Go home. You know. Right. But if, but if you go to Texas and you're like, I think the barbecue in Texas, it, they'll just stop you off in right. the middle of the sentence and maybe punch you or cut you right, with a right. belt buckle or right. something. Yeah. And you can't do that with New York pizza. You know. You, right. You right. can't mess with these institutions. Right. I've even heard a phrase that says you can't mess with Texas. I've never seen a bumper sticker that says "Don't mess with North Carolina." <laughs> No, no. I never seen anyone be like, I'm from Delaware. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're Missourians and we're proud. Is that what you say, Missourians? Yeah, maybe. If you're from Missouri, I'd like you to correct me on that. But anyway, um, we wanted to talk about great songwriters from Texas, and there are a ton. Yeah, yeah. A serious list. I think when you really like get into the whole like singer-songwriter tradition, I mean, there's really a whole Texas kind of... Um, community like you think of guys like Rodney Crowell or you know Jimmy Dale Gilmore or you know Billy Joe Shaver Jerry Jeff Walker Nancy Griffith like there's these people who are you know sort of identified with that Texas scene and it's that singer-songwriter thing you know it's like the kind of romantic notion of you know the the lone Texas troubadour with their guitar and and it's almost like this sort of it's music that appeals to um kind of uh more literate instincts yeah but it's also still very earthy and like still kind of prizes that rural thing that country music uh you know has at the center of it it's it's sort of that americana it's just it's a unique thing you know uh, each one of us put together five of of our favorite or most notable songwriters from texas and yeah. i actually just thought about another one right now that i yeah. may try to wedge in as mm, an honorable mention somewhere i'm curious um but, you know, from, from my first one, uh, I wanted to uh, bring up Gene Autry. Hmm. Uh, not the king of the cowboys. That was Roy <laughs> Rogers. But the singing cowboy, yes, Gene America's Autry. Yes, singing cowboy. Who, um, you know, a, a lot of cool things about Gene Autry's story. My, my dad was a huge fan of Gene Autry. Right. Um, and so I kind of was exposed to his music throughout my childhood. But, you know, songs like Back in the Saddle Again. And uh, people might not know, but Here Comes Santa Claus. 
was a Gene Autry composition. Right, right. I forgot um, about that. And then he went on, and I don't know if you know this or not, but to become owner of the uh, Anaheim Angels. Right, I did know uh, that. Which I think were the California Angels at the time he owned them. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, there's really no reason to try to build up some kind of anticipation because we all know that this is headed toward Willie Nelson. So I'm just going to I'm gonna say Willie Nelson first. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, Willie Nelson kind of established his career uh, in Nashville, you know, writing songs like Crazy and see some of these country standards. But it was really after his farmhouse burned in, in Nashville, and I think very – early 70s, late 60s, I'm a little shaky on the exact timeline, but he basically moved down to Texas and kind of became the spiritual godfather of that whole outlaw mm. movement thing. And, and um, you know, everybody in Texas loves Willie. He, you know, started his 4th of July picnics down there. And, you know, in terms of great songwriters, I mean, I, I have always said that Willie Nelson is is one of the greatest American songwriters uh, of yeah, all time, and sure. you know so identified with with Texas. So I don't think you know uh, what can you say about Willie that hadn't been said. He's the he's yeah. he's the guy. He's the godfather of of the Texas songwriting world. You know the one thing you can say about Willie that hasn't been said is to call him Songcraft guest Willie Nelson. I would that, like to that say that. has not yet been said. We're so working on it. Yeah, we're, we're going to continue to put that out into the world and yes, if you're listening yes. and you're a friend of Willie's uh, or if you are Willie, him. Yeah. please pull the bus up in front of Songcraft World headquarters. <laughs> we will come on. In we a cloud will, uh... of smoke. He, just, he <laughs> came right out. Um, well, I'm moving kind of in an unintentionally chronological mode, but um, after Gene Autry, I, I wanted to talk about Buddy Holly for a minute. Uh, uh, another yeah. guy that my dad um, kind of brought into my life. And uh, I mean, Buddy Holly was unique in, in the late 50s as one of the one of the few artists that was a bona fide writer. Yeah. At the same time, he was not just a face and not just a voice. Um, such an indelible image. Right. But also, you know, writing songs like Maybe Baby and Every Day. Um, yeah. That'll be the day. And it's stuff that actually not was just like a big part of his career. But, you know, there was a big cover of Every Day by James Taylor right, years right. later. You know, songs that endured. Yeah, um, and you look at guys like Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis, and they weren't really writing their yeah, own they were songs. interpreters. Yeah, yeah. He kind of, but he sort of set the the mode for the, like, white rock star who writes his own yep. material. You know, a yep. lot of the R&B guys were, were writing their own stuff, but... But uh, yeah, I mean, he was he was really kind of the beginning of uh, of an archetype. And I think he bears the distinction of being the only early rock pioneer to be played by Gary Busey in a film as well. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> <laughs> if there's another one, let me know. Yeah. Well, okay. So the next one that I chose is this one's a little uh, maybe not obvious, um, but I picked Nora Jones. Well. Oh. Um, I I think Nora Jones is a fantastic artist. Yeah. Um, she's she's a great writer. She's you know, kind of incorporates that Texas country tradition. She loves country music, but she also loves jazz, obviously, mm. and was, you know, launched her career with a jazz label and kind of is a person who pulls together the best of American musical traditions into yeah. her music. And she, kind of like Willie, she creates, you know, a lot of space in her music to bring in some, you know, different elements. And, but also as a, as a vocal stylist and yeah. you can recognize you know, oh, this is Nora Jones, just like you recognize, oh, that's Willie Nelson. But, you know, whether it be kind of a torch song or kind of a Western swing type of thing, she she pulls it off uh, credibly. So I'm, I'm going Nora on this one. That's a good pull. That's not someone that I would have associated with Texas. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, uh, another person that you might not associate with Texas because he's kind of often associated with California, but is Don Henley. Oh, yeah. From the Eagles. Um, but he's a Texas guy. The Eagles. Is that a football team? 
<laughs> and I actually don't. I think it's just Eagles. I think if you look at their records, it never says the Eagles. Huh. I, wow. I think it's just Eagles, which is super weird. Yeah, you can't Very say hard that. to work that into conversation. <laughs> um, Do you like Eagles? <laughs> yeah, they're cool. But you could say I'm an Eagles fan. <laughs> yeah, right. indeed. Um, and, I mean, I, I could list all the songs that, you know, Life in the Fast Lane, which I know you're not a fan of, no, but, but no. I I do love that song. Desperado, which is incredibly Texas y. That's a great song, yeah. Um, but then the solo stuff like Boys of Summer and, you know, well, All She Wants to Do is Dance right. is, is not a favorite of mine, but but again, we're talking about big hits here. And uh, Don Henley's just a great writer. Yeah. And, well, and some of that stuff, End of Innocence and that oh you my know, stuff, I mean, it's just killer. And I love, I think you and I, you, you kind of prefer the Joe Walsh era Eagles. You kind of like the more rocking Eagles. I like the Eagles' first, like, three records, like the, right. the sort of rural uh, country Eagles. What I've told you my problem with early Eagles is that I don't think it should take that many dudes to make that mellow of a sound. <laughs> I think if you're going to line up, like, eight guys in the desert, that there should be some volume to it. And I feel like you could have done Peaceful Easy Feeling as a, as a soft little trio. I, I actually, you know, it's it's very, and I think we've talked about this before, but it's pretty accepted to, like, dump on the Eagles. Like, yeah. you know, plenty of people hate the Eagles, and uh, I remember eagles. reading. just Eagles. Sorry, sorry, they hate Eagles because <laughs> <laughs> they hate America. Um, <laughs> but I remember, uh, like, Chuck Klosterman wrote this great article about there's certain bands that it's completely acceptable to hate and you don't have to give any, like, uh, right. any reason for right. it. And and the Eagles is, is one of those bands. But, you know, I... I uh, uh, you know, critics be damned. I, I like the Eagles. I mean, they yeah. sold like more records than anyone ever. So somebody obviously likes. Well, them. yeah, it's like it's like for all those people to say I hate the Eagles. I'm like, let me look through your CD collection for just a second and see if there's not an Eagles CD in there somewhere. Right? Yeah, totally. Okay, so I'm gonna go with uh, this is one of my personal favorite artists, Buck Owens. Yeah. And we already already referenced Buck Owens when talking about Randy earlier, but. Um, you know, Buck Owens built his career here in California out of Bakersfield, but he was born in Sherman, Texas. So Texas has kind of claimed him as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, Buck and, and Merle Haggard were the two guys that sort of really put Bakersfield on the map. And, and Merle is maybe my favorite songwriter of all time. I mean, mm. he was a poet. But Buck was also a phenomenal songwriter. It's just that most of his songs were like up-tempo and feel-good. And yeah. sometimes it's easy to, huh. you know, forget that, it takes a real gift to write those type of songs. Like yeah. the real deep kind of poetic stuff that's, you know, is, 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 is its own thing. But to really write like a great up-tempo, catchy, fun song. So it's a challenge. Um, it takes, yeah, it's yep. a craft. And Buck was like, he was like a factory when it came to that. He knew exactly yeah. how to do that. And, you know, uh, people who wrote with him talked about what a great song doctor he was. He could move around verses and move around, you know, and, and take a decent song and make it a great song. Yeah. So, you know, he, he wrote stuff like, you know, Crying Time that was more famous in the Ray Charles version and, you know, Together Again, which is sort of like more of that slow. Like, But he was really great at, you know, Love's Gonna Live Here and, and Tiger by the Tail and that mm. sort of like real upbeat, just kind of fun honky-tonk sounding 60s right. country music that, in my opinion, hasn't ever really been duplicated. Good job, by the way, working Merle Haggard into a conversation about Texas where he didn't belong, <laughs> but you still found a way to do it. All it comes, so. all roads lead to Merle. Well done. Um, well, I, I had the uh, the privilege this week of watching the movie A Star is Born for the first time. Ah, I've uh, never seen it. Yeah, what, starring uh, Barbara Streisand, of course, right. and th the next songwriter I want to talk about, Chris Christopherson, hmm. uh, who I, you, you can't have a conversation about the icons of American songwriting without mentioning Chris Christopherson. Yeah. And we were talking about him a bit uh, beforehand. 
And with songs like Sunday Morning Coming Down, Help Me Make It Through the Night, and of yeah. course, Me and Bobby McGee, which is so associated with Janis Joplin, but that's right. a Christofferson song. Yeah, yeah. Um, just such an honest writer and, and someone who handled the language, you know, like it was, you know, everything that he wrote felt like it was just falling out of his mouth for the first time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, one of those guys, uh, of course, again, someone we'd love to talk to, um, but you represents Texas really well. And I don't think he's, I think he's a guy that you can look at and say, uh, yeah, that guy's from Texas. Right. <laughs> right, <laughs> no, right. no surprises. Right. There. Right. Yeah. He's got, uh, he, he was born there and, and there's a little Texas in his blood that will yeah. always, uh, that will always remain. He's yeah. got he's, that sort of cool grit. He's got kind of a Texas beard. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, okay. So my next, uh, next person I'm going to choose is, um, Steve Earle. Mm. Um, Steve Earle is a huge, uh, songwriting influence on me back in the day. Um, Another guy who has sort of tread a lot of ground from, you know, blues to acoustic to bluegrass to straight up rock, um, but always kind of has that Texas troubadour kind of thing at the center of all of it. Um, he did an album in the mid 90s. He had had, you know, drug problems and spent time in jail and was kind of reemerging and, and coming back. And he did this album um, called Train of Coming that was pretty acoustic and mm. kind of folky and kind of going back to his Texas roots. And that's one of my favorite albums of all time because it's just so simple and, and understated, but the songs are brilliant and it really showcases him. Yeah. And Steve likes to rock, uh, but in my opinion, Steve with an acoustic guitar alone yeah, is like unparalleled. Thing. Yeah, just him and his songs and just stripping it down. And, uh, and he's a guy who's who's you know built his career in in Nashville, and I think he's based in New York now. But always has kind of carried that Texas tradition. Yeah. So here's one that actually you and I went to a show, saw this guy play together. Yeah, Billy Gibbons ah. of the Great ZZ Top. Yes, and and in my opinion, ZZ Top represents the best. Right. Of what Texas has to offer because it's it's rock and yeah. it's heavy, but it feels it feels like the desert. Right. You know, even a song like Cheap Sunglasses feels like the desert yeah, to me. Yeah. And that's that is kind of my favorite uh ZZ top stuff. I'm not as big on the on the later, you know, legs and sharp dressed right, man right. stuff, but like the LaGrange, 70s stuff's unbelievable. Cheap sunglasses, Jesus just left Chicago. Waiting I mean, on the bus. Oh my gosh. Like that stuff is so cool. Yeah. And yeah. and Billy Gibbons is one of those guys that you know he's he's got his shades on all the time. Right. He's got his his long beard. He's always got that kind of knit cap on. Right. But you never feel like any of it's an affectation. Right. Right. I feel like he showers with it all on. <laughs> that, that Billy Gibbons is as authentic as it comes. And uh, that that was a great show. We saw ZZ Top with Jeff Beck. I mean, yeah, come on. And yeah. we got to meet Billy afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. And he looked cool. at he looked at me with a look that says, "Why are you backstage?" <laughs> Even through his sunglasses, I could see that that <laughs> was a look on that. his face. You could see it. Yeah. yeah, you know, and this is going to sound like a weird thing to say, but Billy Gibbons, I think of as like a composer. Because if you look, listen to a song, my favorite ZZ Top song is Wait on the Bus, which I just mentioned. But that song is straight up just guitar licks. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter what the lyrics are about. You yeah. know, the lyrics don't matter with ZZ Top. <laughs> it's all about those guitar. But like they literally built killer songs around guitar riffs i yeah. mean it's a it's a compositional thing you know which, so you know i don't think anyone's ever going to be like man we're going to be plumbing the depths of of billy gibbons lyrics for all of eternity but you could plumb the depths of just some of those amazing simple but powerful guitar licks that that it's just raw and, and amazing and and they may not be the greatest american rock band but you can't tell me they don't deserve to be in the conversation yeah for sure for sure 
Um, okay, so I'm going to end with uh, Guy Clark. Huh. Um, Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt are kind of the two guys that get referenced a lot as sort of the quintessential Texas songwriters. And I like Towns Van Zandt, but listening to too much Towns Van Zandt makes me want to slip my wrists. Um, <laughs> Guy Clark is one of the first songwriters that I remember kind of like studying his songs and just mm. going like, wow, what a craftsman. And he really was a craftsman in every sense of the word. He literally made guitars by hand. Wow. Like the guy was, you know, incredible. Um, and the way he wrote songs was like that very deliberate, carefully crafted approach. He didn't waste any words. You know, every right. word had, had a certain weight to it. And I remember, um, He's got this song called She Ain't Going Nowhere on his debut album, Old Number One. And the first line is, she was standing on the gone side of leaving. Oof. And it's just, I remember when I first heard that, I still remember hearing that line and just being like, what an economical way to (laughs) say something. And it's perfect. You can't, you, you can't. There's no improving on that. If I wrote that line, I'd almost be mad because I couldn't use it again. <laughs> I, I would want to write. I would want to put that in every song. That's right. so good. Yeah. And by the way, I'm pretty sure it's Gee. <laughs> <laughs> Part two. Regarded as one of the purest singer-songwriters in the Texas tradition, Robert O'Keefe is a true pioneer and one of the most consistent practitioners of the Americana genre. While studying English at Texas A&M University, Keen linked up with fellow aspiring songwriter Lyle Lovett. The pair analyzed songs and worked on their craft together, writing tunes such as Front Porch Song, which each included on his respective debut album. After the release of the West Textures album in 1989, Keen hit the road with songwriting giants Guy Clark and Towns Van Zant. It was another Texan, Joe Ely, who recorded two of Robert's songs on his highly lauded 1993 release, Love and Danger, that brought Keen to the attention of a wider audience. With a canon of classic songs that includes The Road Goes On Forever, Corpus Christi Bay, Gringo Honeymoon, and Merry Christmas from the Family, Keen built a diverse following that ranges from rowdy college kids to dyed-in-the-wool folkies. Live performance has been an important foundation of Keen's artistry, as illustrated on the modern-day classic live album, Number 2 Live Dinner, that was issued in 1996. With a dozen studio albums and seven live albums under his belt, Keen has continued to explore new musical ground with a string of charting albums that includes 2015's Happy Prisoner, The Bluegrass Sessions. Reaching the top 10 on the country chart and number one on the bluegrass rankings, Happy Prisoner demonstrates that Keen's track record as an artist is just as strong as the respect his songs have earned from other performers. Those who've covered his material include Nancy Griffith, Eddie Raven, Kelly Willis, The Highwaymen, Jack Ingram, Montgomery Gentry, Sean Colvin, Gillian Welch, and George Strait. In 2012, Robert Earl Keen was inducted into the Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame. Robert, welcome to Songcraft. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you uh, here today at Songcraft World Headquarters and special guest co-host Randy Poe. Great to be here with you. And um, yeah, so want to just kind of jump in and, and get right to the, the beginning of, of how you got into songwriting. Um, in 2012, you were inducted into the Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame, and obviously you're a guy that's very much you know, associated with the Lone Star State and mm-hmm. the whole Texas songwriting tradition. So mm-hmm. as a guy that, that grew up in Houston, that kind of, you know, is a product of that environment, right. what were some of those early influences and some of those, uh, some of the music you were hearing as a kid that ultimately kind of shaped your personality as a songwriter? The very first song that I remember getting hold of me, grabbing me personally, 
was uh, Marty Robbins' Ribbon of Darkness. And huh. I, you know, love the sound, but I also, I thought those words, and I, to this day, I still uh, have a little bit of, uh, I don't know, it's a little difficult to uh, untangle exactly what he means and what that I- what that is. Hmm. Uh, but it was... Uh, so beautiful and so dark in a really rich way yeah. that I, I just love love that song. So um, I think that had some, either I was are, are imprinted like that or that had some impact on yeah. me. Uh, different uh, people, I, you know, I loved, you know, Roger Miller. And that was probably because my mother loved Roger Miller. She, sure. And so, you know, of course, uh, King of the Road was sort of, played nonstop for years around my house yeah and uh you know a country song that really was odd it was not so much what people consider a country song but uh wolverton mountain was a very oh, yeah. early odd king. Odd king yeah yeah <laughs> a very early song yeah uh that uh, had you know some impact and i and i believe uh wolverton mountain really um appealed to me because it truly was a story song you know and i've mm. I've gravitated to that, and I've written a lot of those. I, I love the narrative business of of uh, storytelling in a song because it gives me some framework uh, where I, you know, look at it as a beginning, middle, and end. And yeah. when you start out, you have to build some sort of setting or some kind of feel, and then you have some kind of action, and then you have some kind of wrap up. And that's always been. Uh, I hate to say this, but it's been relatively easy for me yeah. to to do that kind of songwriting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those those were the, the ones that had my, had the first impact on me. So you were listening as a kid uh, to country music, pretty much. Almost all all country music until I was about uh, eleven, twelve years old. Um, I you know started hanging out with my friends, and they listened to you know the Beatles, the Beach Boys. Uh, I personally really loved cream and uh and that was because the same thing it uh, it had that sort of rich darkness to it that i loved i think it's interesting talking about you know the marty robbins song and how there was almost you couldn't quite fully untangle what Uh it meant Uh i think it's kind of a key point of there's different ways to look at songs and what makes a great song and what doesn't and does the meaning of the song lie within the the songwriter who wrote it or the person who's experiencing it and what they take away from it, but that the obtuseness, you know, uh-huh. some people don't like that. Uh-huh. Well, I don't know what this song's about. Right. And other people really connect with that right. of like, oh, wow, what wonder what they like to analyze, you right. know? And I think that the fact that that song really captured your attention is sort of telling uh, because I think I see some of that in your writing that, uh-huh. that you, you want to write something that's personal, uh-huh. but also it's not always like it doesn't hit you in the face you right. know there there can be like a, a, a vagueness to it where right. it, it gives the listener room to almost kind of interact with it and infuse their own meaning in a way i i really think in terms of wanting to make a song provocative so that mm. would that would actually include the listener and their yeah. perspective so that's uh, uh that's almost always uh, way up there in my effort when i'm writing a song is to make it provocative so they have their own opinion. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a conversation almost between mm-hmm. writer and listener. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. Um, well, I understand that you moved to, to Austin around 1980 after you graduated mm-hmm. from Texas A&M. Um, mm-hmm. Describe the, the songwriting scene there at the time that, that you arrived and what you kind of 
learned from that environment as a, a budding singer-songwriter? The Austin songwriter scene was very rich. I mean, it was very, very lively and and energetic, and people were, uh, uh, you know, happy to be, you know, playing their songs and sharing their songs. I would say 1980, uh, the person that was probably the most famous uh, in Austin is a regional. Uh, I hate to even say he's regional because I think he's amazing, but uh, Butch Hancock was mm, yeah. the yeah. person who was, you know, top of the heap then. And everybody, you would go, and he wasn't, they weren't playing big places, but every place you would go see Butch, there'd be people standing outside the door to yeah. go watch Butch. And Butch, you know, of course, he always had these sort of put-together bands things, but mostly it was like Butch by himself. And, you know, you talk about provocative. I mean, you can go <laughs> back and forth on Butch songs a, a lot. That doesn't mean they're loose in by any stretch, right, but right. that means they have a lot in them, and they're really, really fun to listen yeah. to and think about. Uh, you know, also, you know, the, the, actually the, that trio, you know, Jimmy Dale and... And Joe Ely, uh, they were all, you know, really hitting it at that time. Right. Joe was like, you know, more more international, going and playing with the Clash and that business. Right. But Joe wasn't, you know, digging into the songwriting as much as he did in the subsequent years. You know, he right. he was actually doing a lot of Butch's songs, a lot of uh, other really cool songs that people hmm. had written. So. Those were the people that were really, you know, of course, Lucinda, but Lucinda was, you know, she, God, I'd, I'd go see Lucinda and there'd be, you know, she'd be playing in a, you know, like an old house in downtown Houston somewhere and mm. there'd be 12 people. It was, right. I always feel lucky that I got to see some of that because some of those kind of things, seeing those people, Nancy Griffith, Eric Taylor, those people were Houston people, but the Austin people, uh, Austin was so, uh, full of places to play and right. still is yeah, that yeah. it allowed people to uh you know play all the time yeah yeah well i imagine that you can't as a as a young songwriter you can't help but be influenced by being absorbed in all that and having that around you and going and seeing these people play and and you know i, I don't know for me, it, I'm not really a songwriter at this point in my life, but at one time I was pursuing that, and it was when I went and saw someone else perform was when I got most inspired to, to mm -hmm. write. You know, you mm -hmm. go home with, like, it's like seeing Rocky. You know, you go mm -hmm. home, you're like, I'm going to train, I'm going to become mm -hmm. a boxer. Right. And you see a great writer, and you go home, you're like, man, I want to write a great song, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, oh, that, 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 that happened countless times, you know. I mean, <laughs> right. uh, really, uh, if it were just myself or if I, you know, go to see somebody play with friends, you know, you'd go back home and break out the guitars and start, yep. you know, playing one of the songs you just heard and then start, you know, working on a new song. And I think there's nothing, for me, there was nothing more inspiring than to be up close and personal to people who really wrote great songs. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're currently on tour with uh, Lyle Lovett, mm -hmm. which is uh, what brings you through town here. So you and Lyle um, wrote the Front Porch song on your 1984 debut album, No Kind of Dancer. This old porch is just a big old red and white Herbert Bulls standing under a mesquite tree Now a dose of Texas He just keeps on playing hide and seek With that hot August sun He's sweating and a pen Cause work is never done How did you guys first connect and, and kind of start working together? Well, I went to uh, Texas A&M at the same time I think he was a year behind me And... Um, 
what happened was I had all these beer drinking, snuff dipping buddies, and we hung out and played music all the time. And then um, they all left that summer, and I took a bunch of uh, summer school classes, and and Lyle did as well. He was a journalism major, I was an English major, and so we had some classes together. And we got where we walked to school together every day, and would you know take these classes, and we would spend literally. 18 hours a day together talking, hmm. drinking coffee, talking about, you know, the class, not so much the school as much as we talked about music and girls. Right. And that was pretty much the, you know, the, 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 the part of our conversation that took up the most time. However, yeah. we did talk about some of the classes that we were taking and, uh, it was one of those deals, you know, like, you you know, any, you know, anybody that has, you know, a great friend, we were great friends from the very beginning, and it yeah. was always like that. And to this date, I mean, this is forty years later, right? Mm. So uh, to this date, we're uh, you know, it's still the same. And just yeah. hey, and we start talking, and it just doesn't stop. I don't know how it happens like that. Isn't that interesting. It's like like Kerouac and Ginsburg. It's like it's like <laughs> these people that that knew each other for very early on, and, right. and both went on to such success. Right. And yeah. it happens in so many fields. Right. Was yeah. there any thought, did you guys talk, had either of you come to the place at that point in your lives where you thought, man, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play music professionally. I, this is what I want to do. We both, you know, knew that, but we both weren't, we never were uh, uh, outspoken about that dream. Uh, mm-hmm. We, You know, we would talk about where we would like to play or who we would like to play with or maybe there's an opportunity to open up for say somebody like i've mentioned eric taylor before yeah. or nancy griffith and open up for them and that would be you know that would be our goal we were right. very you know one step <laughs> at a time kind yeah. of guys but in the back of our mind and back of my mind for sure uh once i could strum a d chord successfully i never <laughs> thought anything about doing anything else but doing that some, at some point. Well, you got a degree in English, so that yeah. explains that. Yeah, that <laughs> there was right. no other plan. There was no other option. <laughs> yes, I know. It was, uh, it was, it, that was a kind of a scary thing in itself. So uh, we went on from there, and uh, I moved to Austin. He stayed in Houston but started playing out all the time. But at the same time, we were both sort of having the same sort of arc in career. We were yeah. playing a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we, uh, you know, moved up for there. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, you talk about Austin. Um, I understand that you actually moved to, to Nashville for kind mm-hmm. of a brief period in the 1980s, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is its whole own animal. It's a, it's a different kind of, mm-hmm. of, of environment. Talk about... I mean, obviously, that wasn't the place for you because you didn't stay long. But kind of talk about that experience and and that time in your life and and how that kind of uh, the Nashville community um, shaped you or or didn't shape you or or whatever that how how that period kind of functioned in your trajectory. I made that record, No Kind of Dancer, in Austin, and I and I felt that was a pretty big step. Matter of fact, uh, you're talking about Lyle. Uh, he gave me this book on how to make and sell your own record, right? It's just a little thin book. And, uh, um, you know, I read that and I thought, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a record because they had this radio station in Austin, KUT, and they would, uh, you know, they played a lot of local people, like I said, all those guys I mentioned before, Butch and Joe and all that. And I thought, well, I got to make a record. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe they'll play it on KUT. So I did, and they did play, play it. And after that, after the initial excitement of that, I started thinking, you know, 
where do I go with this? And about that time, I met Steve Earle, who lived in Nashville mm. and had lived in Nashville for like, I don't know, about 10 years by that time. Yeah. And uh, we, we hit it off. Steve and I, it, we got along really well. And uh, he told me, this is my favorite, Steve, typical Steve sort of like sum it all up in a short sentence. <laughs> he said, he said, you have to move to Nashville because Austin has too many pretty girls, there's too many cheap drugs, and it's too close to Mexico. So you'll <laughs> never get anything done. <laughs> right? And and you and, and you'll and you'll turn into this songwriter, which I won't mention because I really did like him and I had respect <laughs> for him. But he'd been there for a long time. He was yeah. long in the tooth and he was still scratching it out. Right. And he said, you'll turn into this guy if you stay here. And I tell you, just him saying that I will turn up. into that guy. <laughs> I went, Oh my God, I packing up my car now. And, and, I, and I had a 63 Dodge Dart, which I still have. It was my grandmother's car. And I, and I drove to Nashville and I started uh, working it out. And so I called Steve the first week I was there and he was working for a publishing company called Silverline Goal Line and uh, he said well you know you're here now come write a song with me so we sat down and wrote this song called uh, Sincerely Too Late to Turn Back Now and and uh, the publishing company Noel Fox that the head of the publishing company called me and says you know uh, we really like this song uh, I'd like to own the publishing and I'd say okay he says I'll give you a hundred dollars for it I said okay great I'll take it <laughs> and so I get the hundred bucks you know he you know he he gets the song and I walked out of there and this is you know my first couple of days in Nashville officially right. and I thought I can do this every day <laughs> <laughs> and it never happened again in the two years that I was there it never happened again it was you know it was like good rehearsal bad show right it was, it was really really you know and then it just got tough I had to work a lot of jobs I had, I had lots of doors closed in my face I had people literally say you are wasting your time hmm. and but there was a, uh, there's a huge upside. I met some of my best friends in the industry. Yeah. And I also realized that the boogeyman that, that the people in Austin would talk about that was Nashville yeah. was not really that boogeyman. Huh. They have their own special subversive way of, <laughs> of messing with you, but it wasn't like people had said. It wasn't right. that. And they weren't out to get you. Mm -hmm. It's just a tough town, and there's a lot of competition. So you have mm -hmm. to kind of get thick-skinned about it. Yeah. I always feel like it's that uh, Joseph Campbell thing where you go off into the forest and you come mm -hmm. back, you know. And I felt like my my going off into the forest was going to Nashville. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. I came back a really a different person. Right, right. And it, even as hard as it was, and I will have to say, I really... I also, my wife and I ran Hatch Showprint for a year. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. So we did some pretty interesting wow, things, wow. you know. At one point, it was just the two of us running that whole thing, wow. you know. Wow. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of icons, you know. Yeah. And, I had uh, no idea. That's amazing. It, yeah. And so uh, we had, so I had a lot of really good experience, but I was broke, broke, broke. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and I just could never really get a leg up and sort of wore, wore out. And so I, I, this was my experience. So I never was used to, I came from Houston, so I never was used to seeing, you know, the weather say, 
today the high is two degrees. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> like, That's not possible. <laughs> and and uh, so I'm sitting there one really freezing, freezing day in February, and I'm looking out the window, and it's just bleak, and I'm just beat up, and I'm just, I have, feel like I have no more options. And I thought, okay, I can make it through the winter, and if I just make it to the summer, and then I thought, Oh, the summers are worse than the winters here. It is so hot. It has one of those bowl effects, those inversion effects in Nashville, where like you know the clouds come over and just hold the right. humidity and heat in one spot. Yeah. And so I thought, oh no, I can't make I, I, I can't make can't it through the it. summer because it's not worth it. <laughs> so I turned to my wife and said, uh, I was, uh, you know, I'm wondering maybe you know maybe we should move back to Texas. She said, already packed. <laughs> Man. <laughs> you know, one of the things about Nashville, I'm, I actually grew up in Nashville, um, but, you know, one of the things about Nashville is it's it's not a live music town the way that, that Austin is, you know, it's more of an industry town, um, and already, like, your second album was a live album, mm-hmm. and, like, I think seven or eight of your 19 mm-hmm. albums have been yeah. have been live records, so, mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're obviously a guy who who loves being in front of an audience, mm-hmm. loves the, the mm-hmm. live experience, mm-hmm. Um from a songwriting perspective, um, kind of compare the process of creating a song and and working it out in the studio and mm-hmm. kind of fine tuning it in isolation versus debuting a song in front of a crowd and and sort of fine tuning it, it that way. You know, with that sort of feedback. The crowd, I always felt like, was my focus group. So you mm-hmm. you write a song, you step up in front of a crowd, and they almost are always consistent. Doesn't matter if Portland. Oregon to Portland, Maine, they're always consistent. If it's a, if it's flat, even if you think it's the best thing in the world, you know, they'll zone out on you. Hmm. If you if you play a song and it's got something, you know what, like Malcolm Gladwell calls stick, you know, <laughs> yeah. if it if it has some stick, then you will uh you 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 know, you will find out. And and like I said, the crowds are very consistent about this thing, yeah. right? Yeah. When I go in the studio I've I funded almost all my records. Uh, for years, my studio experience was totally related to my financial ability to take care of that particular project. For instance, uh, when we made West Textures, right, which is a really great record, and has mm-hmm. you know Jerry Douglas is on that record, and and uh, Mark Howard is a great great guitar player on that record. My friend Jonathan Yudkin plays the fiddle. But we had seventy five hundred bucks. That wow. record, that record was two days recorded and two days mixed. Wow, that's it, right? And this is all analog, so yeah. you didn't, you know, <laughs> want any real chopping up much, you know. It was, just, yeah. was very little editing. Is basically trying to make the sounds work, right? And so that that really influenced how I looked at my studio experience yeah. Uh, because I didn't feel like I had a lot of time to get creative in the studio. So Hmm. consequently I brought in all the stuff, the best I could to figure it out in my head Hmm. to go in and tell people what we needed to play as time went by and I got bigger budgets and, and I got where I was more and more accustomed and comfortable with the studio. I realized that the studio is as much my creative palette as, you know, a pad and pencil was. And uh, so over the years, I've gone from being 
petrified of the studio because <laughs> right. the meter's running, right? Right, right. To loving the studio and taking all that opportunity to like get these sounds and and enjoy these certain sounds. So I I feel like I've you know I got to get over a hump that a lot of people probably never get over. Sure, you know to find that the studio is such a wonderful place to create. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned. Uh, West Textures, and, uh-huh. and that was the, the record where The Road Goes On Forever uh-huh. was, you know, introduced to the record-buying public, right. and that, of course, has kind of become your, you know, uh, your anthem. That's right, the, you know, right, the, the big right. show closer. That keeps um, me from playing Freebird, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's your Freebird. Yes, it is my Freebird. They soon ran out of money, but suddenly knew a man who knew some Cuban refugees that dealt in contraband. Sonny met the Cuban in a house just off the route With a briefcase full of money and a pistol in his boot The cards were on the table when the law came busting in The road goes on forever and the party never ends Talk a little bit about that song, where that came from, how that came together And, and also sort of your relationship with that song today After having played it a million times versus when you first recorded it it's well it's been one of those songs and uh that you know i really am am grateful that i came up with it and it, yeah. and it works and it really is a closer you know yeah. it's like a great closer and uh so when i wrote that song the way that came about on west Texas, is like i said i had a 7500 budget and a dollar budget and i had jim rooney produce that record that's i'd had moved back to texas at the time and i drove my truck from bandera texas to nashville and i had about 20 bucks in my pocket and that was it and i had already paid for the the session and i was ready to go and i was you know and i went up there and on friday uh, I went over to Jim's house and I played the songs that I had ready for him, you know, to do go in the studio on Monday, and I played them all. And they were, I, you know, there's Mariano in there, and there's there's a Love's a Word I Never Threw Around. There's a, the Five Pound Bass on there. There's all kinds of you know good stuff that I still play to this day. Yeah. I, my, uh, Blackie Farrell's song Sonora's Death Row is on that record, you know. And uh, so I was pretty confident about, you know, what I was presenting. Yeah. And we get to the end of me playing the songs. He says, I just don't think you have, you know, a real anchor song there. I said, what? He goes, you know, (laughs) a song that really holds it all together that we can anchor this whole record to. I said, what about the, you know, and then I went, I can't argue with Jim. So I I said, well, I don't know. He said, well, so what we'll do is postpone the session and, you know, for a couple of months from now and we'll come back and, I said, man, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I got 20 bucks in my pocket, you know, and I don't have a gas credit card. And I, I can't even get down to, I can't even get to Memphis on this 20 bucks back home. Right. We have got to do this. It's got to happen. And right. he, said, he says, well, what do you want to do? I said, listen, I got this song that I got about three verses of. And uh, I think, let me, let me have the weekend and I'll, uh, l- let me have till Sunday. And, um, See if I can flesh this out. So he said, all right. And I, so I went, I was staying with my friend Robin Beresford. And uh, so I was staying at her house and I went in Robin's backyard and I sat down and started playing that song. And I had gotten stuck because I didn't know where I was going to send this couple, you know, in, in, the, the, in the song, the Sonny and Sherry characters. I didn't even know if I was going to go east or west. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I thought, you know, West is too obvious. Huh. And I thought, I, 
I have to go east. I have yeah, to. Yeah. I have to do the kind of what's what's <laughs> not the norm, you know. Right, right. So, uh, you know, I sent them to Florida. So, I, so I once I kind of got over that, the rest of the song sort of wrote itself. It just sort of, you know, once I made, but that was why I stopped in the first place. I just felt like I couldn't make the right choice about what to do with that couple. Yeah. And then once I figured out which direction they were going, it just fell out, and yeah, I yeah. so I called Jim. On Sunday morning, I said, I think I got the song. He says, okay. So I went over to his house. And I played the first three verses that I'd already had. Right? right. And he says, okay, good enough. That's it. I was like, I could have just stopped there. You know? After, you know, After all, all that. I write the song. Uh, but, you know, it was really fortunate that I, I think it had a lot to do with just the pressure and, mm-hmm. and, the, and the circumstance. So we went in there and he said, that's perfect. And it was also, you know, one of those songs that, man, you know, from then on, I'd play that for anybody. And yeah. I had people... Uh, you know, would call me up and say, you know, I want you to write the, I want you to write the next road goes on forever with me, or yeah, I want yeah. you to come, you know, just hang. I'm like, look, it's kind of a one time deal, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah, that's yeah. like my bosses. Everybody says, could you write another Stand by Me? And then, <laughs> no. <laughs> when was the very first time that uh, another artist recorded one of your songs? Well. Uh, do you know the band Reckless Kelly? Do you know them? Sure. Yeah. All right. They they live in Idaho and they're from Stanley, Idaho, and their dad uh, had all those boys were a little cowboy band and their dad was like the lead cowboy and they were on the tw- Tonight Show. I have <laughs> a VHS of them being on the Tonight Show, <laughs> yeah. singing you know cowboy songs together, and uh, Muzzy Braun is his name. Uh, after I put out No Kind of Dancer. About a year afterwards, uh, he sent me a check for fifty dollars, and, and he had cut this song called "Willie" that's on there. Right, and uh, it's a little another little cowboy tune, and uh, and he he sent me this check for for fifty dollars. He says he says I I recorded your song, and it's just sort of a regional record out there, but I figured this is about what the publishing was worth. <laughs> and I said. I said Fine, great, thanks a lot, Buzzy. So, so that was my first connection with that whole Braun family, and, right? Uh, and also, that was the first time somebody recorded one of my songs, which was pretty good because you know that record had been out for only about a year, and so, yeah. you know somebody recorded. I was a, it was enough to make me feel like you know I was doing some things right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, on the right track. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this kind of puts you on the spot, but do you have a of of all of your songs, I mean, you've had songs you've written that have been covered by, you know, George Strait mm-hmm. and, I mean, all mm-hmm. kinds of folks. Um, do you have a personal favorite uh, cover of one of your songs by another uh, artist? I like any cover of my song. I don't <laughs> care. I don't care how what how crazy it is, you know. Yeah. My, I think my favorite, like, shock and surprise, and this would be a surprise to you, but was uh, this band... Uh, Richard Schindel and Lucy Kaplansky and Dar Williams. Uh, that they, uh, they they had a band for like one record called Cry Cry Cry, mm. and they I all of a sudden I get this CD in the mail. I go, uh, wow, uh, Shades of Grey. Hmm, I got a song called Shades of Grey, and then I just threw it on the desk, you know. <laughs> and then about a month later, I'm going, oh, what's oh yeah. yeah. 
And I go, okay. And I open it up. I thought, I'll listen to this. So I'm listening to it yeah. in my office. And all of a sudden, Shades of Grey comes on. And it was my Shades of Grey. Wow. And I was completely, <laughs> and I, it was really, it was really good. It was well done. It's very, very acoustic, yeah. but really well sung. And, and it was just like, that was, you know, huh. wow. It was just yeah. this blast of like, wow, this is better than I could ever thought this song would be. Since then they've done their little dance right outside the law. Popped twice in Oklahoma and once in Arkansas. And I don't know what possessed me want to tag along because I was raised a Christian and I knew right from wrong. Right or wrong, black and white. Cross the line, you're gonna pay. Even the dawn before the light. Never die by shades of gray. Well, the first time that I ever heard a Robert O'Keen song in my life was 1998. I was in Gunnison Forest, uh, Colorado, at one of these adventure uh, camps, and there was a girl there from Waco, Texas. She played guitar. And she says, oh, have you guys heard Merry Christmas from the Family? And uh, I'm like, no, what's that? She's like, oh, it's the funniest song. It's so great. So this girl plays it on her guitar, her her version of it on her guitar. And I thought it was amazing. Mm -hmm. But it really, I mean, it struck a... It struck a chord with me because mm-hmm. it was funny. Mm-hmm. And I always thought funny songs kind of fell into the like Ray Stevens, Weird Al Yankovic mm-hmm. sort of sure. category. Right. But this song, I'm listening, I'm going, it's funny, but it's also sly and it's sharp. Mm-hmm. It's a different kind of funny. On the turkey, turn the ball game on. Next margaritas when the eggnog's gone. Somebody to the quick pack store. We need some ice and an extension cord. A can of bean dip and some diet rides. A box of tampons and some Marlboro lights. Hallelujah, everybody say cheese. Merry Christmas from the It's not easy to write and be funny mm-hmm. without being goofy or, right. you know, but just, just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that song specifically, but also in a larger sense, that whole approach to, to songwriting in a way that makes people smile without, you know, but right. still making them kind of think too, you right. know. Right. I, I, you know, back to the part where I talked about, you know, audiences or a focus group, a funny song is the best test you know to see if they're listening yeah. and to find out if the song is really funny because if if you you know there's songs that i've written that you know like i thought were funny yeah and you play it to people and they just go you know <laughs> and you know and then you, know, you think well you can't say they don't get it i mean when you first start out you can say that right <laughs> but as, as much as i've done you know played as many shows as i've done I know that this is honest. This is, yeah. you know, it, so I go, ah, that's not funny. Boom, let's get rid of that. <laughs> right. And sometimes within that whole scenario, the thing that you didn't really think was funny is funny. And the, then what your big punchline is not funny, right? right. There's another one. So <laughs> yeah. it gets kind of right. upside down. Yeah. But on the Christmas song, I was writing the songs for uh, Gringo Honeymoon. And I was, I, 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 I was writing... The song on there called "The Raven and the Coyote," and it's a, 
it's a long narrative sort of, uh, you know, I don't know what would be kind of a, uh, exotic, uh, you know, story things basically set in Mexico or in South America. And, um, and it was, you know, I was trying to get all the parts in there and I wanted it to sound right and I wanted it to make sense. Sure. And, but I was like working myself into a headache writing this song. I was just wearing myself out. Yeah. And I finally took a break and it was, this is in November. And I, I thought, oh, I just got to just write something. And I thought, well, you know, it's okay. Cause you know, I got all of the rest of November and then I got all of December. And then I thought, I don't know. I don't have all of December. It's all the holiday thing. And you're always stuck in the holidays and you can't get out of this business, this holiday business. And I thought, I just write it. I just write myself my own Christmas. You know, there's not, and I'm thinking that there's not a, I don't know what a chestnut looks like. You know, I never heard a sleigh bell, <laughs> right? I'm going to write my, I'm going to, I grew up in Houston, Texas. It can be 90 degrees and 98% right. humidity. That's just, so I'm sitting there and I'm just strumming along. And then I just started write, writing this song and it really just, you know, fell out all the pieces. Mm. I just, it was so easy because like all of these things were my experiences. Mm -hmm. All of these, you know, the thing about the box of tampons, I, that wasn't made up. I didn't think, oh, let me find a weird thing about it. You know, here's something really weird, throw in right. a song. It was because my aunt Sadie, and I have a cousin that's a year younger than me, we were at Christmas and she says, she used to call her son Lee Puck. His name is Lee Puckett, but she'd go, Lee Puck? And she's from San Angelo. And she, she went, I mean, in front of everybody, in front of God and everybody. And we're only like, we're like 10 years old and all we have is a bicycle. And she goes, Lee Puck, take this $5 down to the convenience store and buy me some tampons. And we're just, oh my God. Oh, can you believe she said that out in front of everybody, you know? And, 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 and you know, so that just like fell in the song. It was just boom, you know, here it right. is. And so I write this song and really, truly, I, probably not more than 30 minutes, you know, and not really, no editing, no return to, you know, this would be better than this. It just fell out. Wow. And, um, so I'm playing. So I did that record, Gringo Honeymoon, with Gary Valletri, who ran Bug Music. You know yeah, Gary, right? Sure. Yeah. And um, Gary, uh, so I'm playing the same deal, you know, playing the producer of the songs. And he said, Well, what else you got? I said, Well, I got this stupid Christmas song. He said, Play <laughs> it for me. I said, Okay. He, I played it for him. And he starts really laughing immediately and just yeah. laughing and laughing. I thought, Wow, that's okay. He goes, Oh, this has got to be on the record. I went, Really? Goes, if you listen to that record, the nature of it is pretty serious. It's not yeah, like yeah. real dark, but it's pretty right. serious. And that's the only kind of like comedic relief in right. the whole thing. Right. And, uh, you know, so we put it on the record. Uh, and then, then here's a st back to a studio thing. We played it. And like when you got studio musicians on that deal, there was uh, Gurf. And uh, and uh, Carrie Talent and George Marinelli and right. uh, Dave Rusher uh, all, all were playing on the session. You know, these guys are great. So right. you go, okay, here's the song. And they just kind of click into this perfect, like, 2-4 country time. And I go, whoa, 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 whoa. It's got to be slow. And right. I said, and they, and they slowed it down a little bit. I said, no, no, no. It's got, well, how slow? I said, think you're a 14-year-old kid and you just drank a bottle of Boone's Farm and you've been throwing up all night and you just woke up, okay? <laughs> and the best thing you can do is just pick up your guitar and maybe strum a chord. That's how slow I want this. And then, and so we did this really, if you listen to it, it's really slow. Yeah. 
And to the point where it's like, you go, wow, I wonder why this is so slow. <laughs> right. you know? But it had some kind of magic to it. This, right. And I have to remind myself on stage, back yeah. off, you know, because, right, right. you know, there's a stage tempo thing, you know. Right. So, mm-hmm. So it's it's hard to keep that slowness right all the way through that song, <laughs> but I do think that that caught a lot of people's attention. Just the the, the slow the slowness. Slow yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, for me, it was it was the phrase "a can of fake snow." <laughs> I mean, that's just the greatest phrase in the world. <laughs> Well, that's what you had to have. Yeah, you know? Absolutely, because <laughs> yeah, it's Houston. Yeah, the closest, closest thing you could get to snow in Houston. Well, your 2001 album, Gravitational Forces, hit the top 10 on Billboard's country chart. And, you know, this is coming out of an era where country uh, was really slick and, and, you know, kind of bloated. And all of a sudden, the Americana thing is is catching on. People are kind of getting into that. Did it surprise you to see the way that kind of the country mainstream started moving in that era to more embrace the kind of tradition that you'd kind of been a part of? For a long time, I was just—I was just glad it was. I yeah. just felt—I didn't, you know—I felt like it should have been moving that direction in a, in a short order, but it, it didn't. And uh, uh, so, uh, and and I, w- I was really lucky because uh, that that's that record was a tough record. I mean, you know, that record came out on nine eleven. Really? Mm. Yeah, on wow. that day, I was in Ca- I was in California. I was in Santa Cruz, California, when that happened, and mm. and uh. And and we were gonna that's we we're gonna have our record release there in Santa Cruz because I have a good good audience you know yeah, we yeah, gonna, yeah. anyway uh, so that record was uh, you know it had a it had a tough start from the beginning but um, you know I did feel like I had uh, finally been sort of accepted into some some sort of yeah. mainstream yeah and. Um, uh, I'm not sure how long that really lasted, though. <laughs> <laughs> right. Not, not my acceptance, but like <laughs> that that sort of that Americana being that embrace, you, you know, yeah. the, the mainstay of country music. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Your only other top ten uh-huh. country record was uh-huh. bluegrass, right? You know, bluegrass record, right. which. As a songwriter, I mean, now you're talking about approaching a project where you're not going to write the songs, mm-hmm. you know, you're mm-hmm. going to do other people's songs, you know, songs that have, mm-hmm. in some cases, maybe who knows even where the, the origin came from, mm-hmm. you know, like sure. real, real classic sort of stuff. Right. Um, talk a little bit about that, about that record and, and just coming to that as a songwriter when you're not the writer yourself, but you're deciding what songs to, to do that other people have written. I always liked bluegrass, but I didn't. I wasn't like involved in it, and I got way involved in it and learned all these songs. And I always loved bluegrass. I love it because I just feel like it's one of those things that's so simple. You don't have to like second guess what you're hearing. You just get to enjoy the music really, yeah, and yeah. it really focuses on the soloing and the mm-hmm. and the playing, the level of playing. And there's so many great players out there. So I thought for a long time that. Uh, that I wanted to make a bluegrass record, but there was this entire huge uh, group of people that, uh, country people especially, that just one year after another would make a bluegrass record. So it, I'd go, oh, no, you know, not. And I just got to that point where I thought, with this record, with The Happy Prisoner, I just, it just occurred to me, I mean, really, truly woke up one morning and said, if I'm going to do this record, I got to do it now. I don't care about what happens. I don't care who's involved or who, you know, I don't care yeah. if Jackson Brown makes a bluegrass record. I just got to, I'm going to make this bluegrass record. Right. So yeah. 
is actually trying to get rid of, you know, trying to get the best 20 songs that we could do as opposed to like, you know, we could have done 50 songs. Right. You know? right, we, were just, right. we were like trying to figure out exactly what songs to do. So um, the way that that all came about was, uh, you know, one day I decided we had to do this and I got really lucky and everybody could come do it at, yeah. at the same time. Does that factor in at all for you as you as you're writing? Are you kind of also arranging in your own mind with the band that you know you've got, or or does that play into your process? I, I don't know. How, how, I mean, that's a good question because I I ask myself that same question. I, I don't know how much and exactly how it factors in, but I do think in terms of um, it, what it does is it just actually opens me up to write any damn thing I want to write. Mm. You know, I don't feel limited yeah. because I always use my band uh, to at least play the core stuff. I'll, I'll, you yeah. know, I'll get some uh, outline players to play some things that they don't play so sure. much, you know, or some maybe singers or something, you know, the guest yeah. people and stuff. But the core is always, is always the band. Yeah, yeah. You know, talking about playing bluegrass stuff and your early stuff really you know was pretty bluegrass influenced in, uh -huh. in an obvious yeah, way sure. and you know moving kind of into the americana stuff there's bits of of rock i mean there's mm -hmm. a lot of stuff and mm -hmm. i listen to a song like what i really mean mm -hmm. and you've got prominent banjo but then mm -hmm. you've got like the sax thing going on mm -hmm. at the same time and we were down on beale street memphis tennessee the blues and booze and barbecues and i name on the marquee and you should have seen Crowd drew in there. What I really mean, I wish you were here. So you, you, you've taken a lot of elements mm -hmm. over the years mm -hmm. and, and mixed into your music. Mm -hmm. How would you describe your style? I really do hang my head on the uh, Americana moniker because yeah. uh, I feel like uh, it is it is a uh, it is a category for music that has all those elements that i use yeah and uh and you're welcome there with those elements mm -hmm. whereas you know there's a lot of different kinds of music that none of those things you know part of them may be welcome than others so yeah. there's not another place for me especially no oh, well i mean you were at the forefront of it as far yes, as right. i'm concerned yeah. so yeah, yeah right. gotta help define stick it. with that one yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah, well, I, I, and, and i'm not afraid of I, people need categories you know yeah. I, I hear people talk about oh you know i don't want to be cat well you know great man go okay if you're looking for my record go to the americana section you know? <laughs> the, the, i'm not gonna say anything you know oh, i'm too esoteric to really describe what i do you know i i want to you know i, I you end up being too esoteric to sell records <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right absolutely I, you know and that's the thing it's like you're in this business so you want to sell records and you yeah. want people to hear you and you want i want to keep doing this I, this is what i love to do and that the performing thing and like i said before you know got where you know i could spend every day in a studio these days and when yeah. it used to frighten me to death so uh i i'm all about being americana yeah yeah you do what you do and it's really my job to keep making it yeah. it's somebody else's job to figure out you know how to how to get it out there to the people sure you know sure well i want to uh throw in before this ends that uh 
Number Two Live Dinner uh-huh. ha- has been my favorite live album for oh, as long cool. as it's been around. I have to confess, for the first decade or so, I thought it was Number Two Live Diner. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know why, because I can't read, apparently. Yeah. This is what my English degree got yeah. me. Um, <laughs> that, the reason it's such a wonderful album is the songs, uh-huh. the performance, uh-huh. but also because you take it exactly the way it needs to go from right. beginning to end. Right. And I, I so admire your bravery that your intro to uh-huh. The Road Goes On Forever uh-huh. is almost as long as the song right. itself. Right. It, it's just, just, and so, so beautifully told. Talk yeah. about your spoken Thank word. You. Thank you, thank you, thank yeah. you. Uh, well, that was, you know, that was a, a pretty big crowd, and you can hear those people yelling. And you, the, I remember thinking, "Focus, focus, keep talking, <laughs> keep talking. You'll get it through. You know, you, you can do this." And, uh, and like, uh, and I did. But boy, it was like that, that was a, you know, that was a rowdy crowd there. Was that know? John T. Flores? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, huge. yeah. 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 And then I say in that one part where I say, "Say free love," and this guy goes, "Free love." <laughs> yeah yeah and of course live dinner reunion 20 uh-huh. years later just yeah. their most recent record i believe came out uh last year yeah. which is another uh kind of another live record kind of yeah. two tent poles of, of uh-huh. who you are as a live right. performer which right. is very cool well i didn't want to just repeat that you know uh number two live, live dinner so i i you know i asked you know my my friends and you know um, much to my surprise they all showed up lyle and joe and uh bruce robinson Corey morrow and the reckless kelly guys it just turned out to be this great camaraderie of music it's not like yeah. the the best live record or anything but it was just so great to be backstage <laughs> with all these guys and talk about all the stuff that we've done you know and how we don't get together enough mm-hmm. and all that business yeah. and yeah it was so it was so fun and i just felt yeah. like you know this is a you know, if it doesn't go any further than this, this is this is this is it. This yeah, is as good as yeah, it gets. You know, yeah. really, it's great. Very cool. Well, Robert O'Keen, thank you for years of of great music out thank on the road you. right now with Lyle Lovett. So be sure to uh, check them out when they come to your town. And uh, thank you so much for for taking the time. My today. pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters.